Well, one good turn deserves another. I think it's quite remarkable to think that our illustrious leader predicted that this topic would be on the first Sunday in Lent. She obviously has a profound grasp of what I'm going to say. (laughs) According to F.F. Bruce, whose commentary on Hebrews I found most helpful, Hebrews is a book that modern man finds difficult to appreciate. It happens to be my favorite book in the Bible. This confirms what many of you have suspected. I am indeed not a modern man. (laughs) (laughs) Members of our Bible study group, which is hosted by Sheila Westberg, sitting close to the front, have all made comments that have enhanced my appreciation of this extraordinary book. And the fact that it is often perceived as difficult is a source of great loss for the contemporary church. Every Sunday at the communion service, we say the prayer of consecration from the Canadian Book of Common Prayer. It goes like this, for those of you who haven't experienced communion recently. Blessing and glory and thanksgiving be unto thee, almighty God, our heavenly Father, who of thy tender mercy didst give thine only Son, Jesus Christ, to take our nature upon him and to suffer death upon the cross for our redemption, who made there by his one oblation of himself once offered a full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice, oblation and satisfaction for the sins of the whole world, and did institute and in his holy gospel command us to continue a perpetual memorial of that his precious death until his coming again. Well, most of you know this by heart, I'm sure. But where did those words come from? Where did they, Well, they came from all over the place. But most intensely and most forcefully in the book of Hebrews, I suggest. And I'll try to demonstrate that in a few moments. But before we do that, uh, let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable to thee, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. So, here you have it, the whole of the book of Hebrews, which I'm going to just look at in in three points and a conclusion. First of all, the story of the book of Hebrews. Secondly, its uniqueness. Thirdly, the way in which it (coughs) structures itself. I should rather say the way in which the Holy Spirit structures it is as a series of warnings and a series of sections that deal with affirmation of who Jesus is and what his work for us means. And then it ends in chapter 13 with a collect. It's exactly the same structure as the collects that we know in the BCP and the sharing of the grace. So the structure of the of the book is like that. Five Warnings, five affirmations, a collect, and sharing of the grace. And finally, a conclusion. So if you can't read it, I shall repeat these points as we go. I emphasized when it was announced last week that this was going to be about the book of Hebrews, not about the letter or the epistle to the Hebrews. I owe this insight to William Lane, who has written uh, a light, accessible uh, commentary on Hebrews, who points out that this particular book has no greeting, it has no introductory uh, address to any particular church, and that it really is a sermon 
a sermon to a church which is in danger of backsliding and going back into its Judaic origins. So the purpose of the book is to warn this backsliding church what the implications are of their backsliding. It doesn't do as Paul does to the Galatians, say, oh, you foolish Galatians. You really are a bunch of foolish people. I won't say anything more. (laughs) You have seen the, the wonders of coming into the freedom of the gospel and now you're wanting to go back into ritual and works from which you have escaped. No, the author of the Hebrews, and note, I'm not declaring my position on who wrote the book of Hebrews. I believe that it is God-breathed, that it is from the Holy Spirit, and that to worry about the authorship is a complete waste of time. Many, many distinguished and spiritual people have discussed this over the years and all have come to different conclusions. Well, not all, but a few have agreed. But it's not, it's not made explicit and it's not apparent from the evidence. Basically, it's the best example that I know of a passage that is, or a book that is God-breathed. It's God-breathed, and which we understand the whole of the Bible is, but some passages speak more evidently than others. It seems to me that this an example for those who are scholars in the area. This is Theoplustos at its best. Right? It is God-breathed, and we don't have to worry about who wrote it. The uniqueness... Well, let me just say a few more things about the, the story here. That the, the interesting strategy that the author uses, uh, alternating warnings with affirmations, is that it really majors on the affirmations. The warnings are contained as a maximum of three or four verses. The affirmations of the wonders of Jesus and of the uniqueness of his work and his the uniqueness of the faith into which he has adopted us is by far the, the major part of the book. And that is what makes it so attractive, not only to me, but presumably also to the, the Hebrews, the Christian Hebrews who, who heard it. So the whole emphasis is not on telling people off for backsliding, as it tends to be in Galatians, but the emphasis is on considering Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And the detailed discussion of what this means is contained in chapters, long sections, by contrast with the warnings. I don't mean to say that the warnings are unimportant. Don't misunderstand me. The, the purpose of the book itself is to is to get these people to sit up and, sh- and, and shake themselves and, and realize where they're going wrong. But the strategy is to point to Jesus. <coughs> in every respect, and every one of the chapters contains this focus. And I just, I'm thrilled by this book because I don't find any other book including the Gospels in which Jesus is so interpreted and so central to the whole message now I'm not I'm not wanting to tell you that you have to have this book as your favorite book of the Bible we all know that people have come unstuck uh, in, in making that sort of recommendation I'm sorry that Jim Packer isn't here today but I well remember his statement that Ecclesiastes uh, is his favorite book in the Bible. Well, that's, that's Jim Packer's perspective. 
he's honoured in so many other ways. <laughs> but, but really, uh, Hebrews, I think, is a better candidate. Uh, <laughs> so the story is simply this. Here is a sermon. Here's the most gracious sermon and the most focused sermon on the beauty and the effectiveness of the work of Christ that you'll find anywhere. So our Bible study group was just thrilled by this and we had a, a wonderful time. And as I've said before, I regard uh, you as the board of directors here. We as a Bible study group have to report back to the board of directors uh, what we've been doing and if you feel that we've, what you've concluded is wrong, then of course we have to take note. But this is a kind of uh, obligation I think we have as, as Bible study groups to share these uh, observations, these insights, which we believe to be, at least in part, the work of the Holy Spirit with the community at large. And you, sisters and brothers, are those who should affirm or critique this finding. So the story is one of extolling the virtues of Jesus Christ. There are seven ways in which he is extolled in the very first four verses of the book. And we'll come to that in a moment. So my con our conclusion is that this is indeed a sermon and not a letter, and uh, not a lot hangs on that, but basically the sermon uh, is something that we should take seriously, not to suggest that we are all backsliding, but the tendency for us all to backslide is surely with us from time to time, and fortunately not all the time, but we have to think seriously about that and the... <coughs> issue then is what we do, which is to focus our eyes upon Jesus. Hebrews is unique in at least two respects. One is, as mentioned, that is focused centrally, comprehensively, and exclusively on the person and work of Jesus Christ our Lord and Saviour. A second unique aspect of the book is that it has a bridging function. Now we remember that the Gospel of Matthew has a very clear bridging function. The Gospel of John, through its uh, prologue, has a very strong bridging function between Old and New Testament. But the bridging function in the Hebrews is kind of woven through every chapter so that you are at every point referred to the Old Testament precedent for what Jesus did and was and is. The author of Hebrews speaks of Jesus as creator, upholder of the universe, redeemer, saviour, Mediator, intercessor, high priest, king, founder and perfecter of our faith, sinless man, for a little while made lower than the angels, shepherd, yes, shepherd is in Hebrews too, son of God, the second person of the Trinity. Every one of these titles expresses an affirmation of who Jesus is. This uniqueness, or these two uniquenesses, the focus on Jesus and the bridging function, seem to me to be the most important contextual comment that we can make about the book. And it makes this idea that this is not for modern man uh, quite ridiculous modern man and even modern woman needs this 
glad to see people smiling. <laughs> it's really uh, an aspect of our laziness in not wishing to come to grips with the context of the Old Testament and how it relates to the New Testament, which causes people to have difficulty with it. Now, the reason that you have Bibles in front of you, uh, so those are the two aspects of uniqueness, the focus on Jesus and the bridge function. The reason you have Bibles in front of you is to make sure that I am correctly quoting from the Bible. And uh, as you know, one of the corners of the quadrilateral for Learners Exchange is Bible study. And this one comes closest to being such an example. What I'd like to do, and this may be uh, a little onerous, but I'd like to go section by section and and point, first of all, uh, to the warnings and then major on the affirmations. Warning number one is found in chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. And it's a warning against neglecting uh, salvation. Therefore, we must pay the closest attention to what we have heard. This is chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. The second warning is a warning against failure to enter into God's rest, which is chapter 4, verse 7. And today, if you hear his voice, Harden not your hearts. The third warning is found in chapters 5 and 6, warning against apostasy. You have become sluggish in your hearing. Well, he didn't say foolish Galatians, but he did say become sluggish in your hearing to the Hebrews. You have come to require milk instead of solid food. It is impossible to renew again to repentance those who have once been enlightened. So that's actually 5 verse 11 and 6 verse 4 together as that third warning. The fourth one we will find possibly is a warning against deliberately carrying on sinning after receiving the knowledge of the truth. It's in chapter 10, verse 31. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And finally, warning number five is against regarding lightly the discipline of the Lord and the danger of a root of bitterness springing up and causing trouble, which is in chapter 12, and verse 15. So, what I'm suggesting is that the book hangs on these five warnings, and that the elaboration that goes before each of these warnings essentially is an affirmation of who Jesus is. So, if you... you, uh, Well, I'll just mention each of them again. Warning number one, against neglecting salvation, chapter two. Warning against failure to enter into God's rest, chapter 4, verse 7. Warning against apostasy, chapters 5 and 6. Warning against deliberately carrying on sinning after receiving the knowledge of the truth, in chapter 10. And the warning against regarding likely the discipline of the Lord and the danger of a root of bitterness springing up and causing trouble. That is the diagnosis of the problem that the church, that this sermon was addressed to. They're in danger of slipping into a whole series of problems. And the answer is found in the five sections that are affirmations. The very first one, chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, is perhaps the most famous uh, introduction. 
Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. F.F. F. Bruce writes, and not necessarily the members of our Bible study group, but F.F. F. Bruce writes, God has spoken. This initial affirmation is basic to Christian faith. Had God remained silent, the plight of mankind would have been desperate indeed. What God essentially is, is made manifest in Christ. To see Christ is to see what the Father is like. The greatness of the Son of God receives a sevenfold affirmation in these first four verses of the book. Any of you who've tried your hand at writing a book would surely wish that you could write an introductory paragraph like this. Everyone struggles with the introductory paragraphs of a book. And here is the most extraordinary statement of the whole of the book in the sense that it is emphasizing the finality of the revelation of Christ. Jesus is our focus. There's more to that, of course, as we go. In chapter 2, and specifically I'm quoting here uh, verse 9, and now preparatory to the warning against failure to enter into God's rest. We see him, chapter 2 verse 9, we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Don Calvin comments on this verse by saying, for everyone, he means not only that Christ might be an example to others, he means rather that Christ died for us, and by taking on himself what was due to us, he redeemed us from the curse of death. Next, chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. This is the warning against apostasy. Preliminary affirmation being, since then we have a high priest, a great high priest, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace in time of need. This is extraordinary and wonderful affirmation of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. There is in the book of Hebrews a strong emphasis on the example of the high priest in the Old Covenant. There is, of course, this very curious illustration of the example of Melchizedek, to whom Abraham paid respect. Melchizedek being interpreted as being both priest and king. And Jesus is seen to be the perfection of that model or that 
analogy in the perfection of his high priesthood. Then prior to the fourth warning, chapters chapter 9, verses 12 and 14, Christ entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. How much more will the blood of Christ, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Those of you who have memorized the Anglican articles will recognize Article 31, which speaks of the one oblation of Christ finished on the cross. So these sources in the BCP and in our Anglican tradition are in many cases word for word taken out of the book of Hebrews. So if you have problems with this, you'll have problems with the BCP, but you may have problems with the BCP for other reasons. But, that, but basically there's a consistency here in terms of the liturgy and the belief system which we have inherited as between the book of Hebrews and the book of Common Prayer. Now prior to the Uh, part of this being prior to the warning number four against deliberately carrying on sinning Christ has appeared chapter 9 verse 26 and 28 Christ has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself so Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many will appear a second time not to deal with sin but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. The language here, uh, as F.F. F. Bruce comments, is a plain echo of the suffering servant song in Isaiah 53, where he bore the sin of many. Then in chapter 10, verses 19 to 25, Therefore, brothers and sisters, or sisters and brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Another wonderful affirmation. Then coming up to warning number five, chapter 12, verses 1 to 4. Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us, this is of course following chapter 11, which is the record of the, the faith of the Old Testament uh, patriarchs. Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now you can see how intense and persistent these affirmations are. And it's one of the things, I suppose, that makes it heavy going when you read the, the book 
from, from, from verse 1 to the end, because there are so many of these profound statements. But it seems to me that picking them out as sort of essential affirmations reminds us of the theme of how to attract people to faith. It is to look to Jesus. Now there is, at the end of the book, in chapter 13, a collect. Yeah. If you thought a collect was only talked about in Anglican worship, the structure of a, a collect, which uh, we've been reminded of by Bruce Hindmarsh on, I think... Maybe two occasions, but I can recall one occasion particularly where he <coughs> talked about the structure of collects. They're characterized, first of all, by an invocation, then an adjectival clause laying out the grounds on which the petition is based, and then the main petition, and then a subsidiary petition, and then a pleading of the mediatorial merit of Christ, and then a doxology. But if you look uh, in your BCP at the structure of collects, they all contain some of those elements. Some contain all of those elements. So what am I talking about? Well, it's chapter 13, verses 20 to 21. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Right? The structure is totally what Bruce reminded us about a few months back. Why this collect at the end of all this warnings and magnificent affirmations why the collect any thoughts to me this is a, a, a new insight um, all the evidence in the world and all the affirmations that we may make are worth nothing if not coupled with a prayer. So we've, we've been warned and we see the extraordinary intensity of the affirmation of our Lord's work on our behalf. And the only thing the speaker of the sermon can think of is a prayer in order to accomplish something of these of these affirmations <coughs> and, to, and to enter into the affirmations. So I'll just read it again because it is so profoundly important, it seems to me. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us, interestingly, the, the preacher identifies with his congregation here, the, the prayer is for doing God's will, but it's working in us, that's to say the, the preacher and the congregation, that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And then finally, this very simple little verse, which you could really miss if you didn't read carefully. Verse 25. Grace be with all of you. I mean, again, this whole declaration of the profound significance of who we worship, why we worship, and what this all means in the long run is impossible without the grace of God 
upon us. So we may do all kinds of interesting theological calculations and all kinds of uh, intellectually rigorous analyses and read lots of books. Grace be with you all is the is the final statement. So this seems to me to be the essence of the structure of the book. Identify the five warnings and then look at the affirmations that lead to those warnings and then recognize that those ten conditions cannot be met without a prayer and without the grace of God being with us. It seems to me to be a profound and absolutely wonderful sermon. I would like to have been there to hear who this person was, to, to hear what inspired him or her in this particular in this particular book. If they had women priests at the time, I don't know, but it's a possibility. So my conclusion uh, to all this is to quote from John Newton's hymn. How sweet the name of Jesus sounds in a believer's ear. It soothes his sorrows, heals his wounds, and drives away his fear. Jesus, my shepherd, husband, friend, my prophet, priest, and king, my Lord, my life, my way, my end, accept the praise I bring. That's, in a nutshell, uh, but of course there are many other things to be found in Book of Hebrews, but in the time available, it seems to me that is enough to to give us a structure for our discussion. And I'd be interested to hear if there are others who have found similar help in Hebrews, or there are those who, who feel that it is a very hard book to read. It's hard only insofar as we are detached from the Old Testament and unwilling to make the effort to, to look more carefully at it. But I'd like to stop there and, and uh, uh, ask for comments, uh, questions, thoughts, and whether, in fact, our Bible study group has got the, the right end of the, of the stick here. Thank you. <laughs> sure. Well, my recollection of the Bible study group was that we spent a, a good half of the first discussion on it. Is it a letter or is it not? <laughs> because it, it, it reads as if it could be either. And I guess my comment about that is clearly whatever he said in the sermon was in circulation at the time that Scripture was put together. In other words, there were other churches that had this available to them, which is a miracle in itself. Somebody thought this was worth writing down. And thank goodness for that. Um, the other thing which I found baffling but wonderful in a way is that the early church struggled, and some people still do, with the whole doctrine of the Trinity. You know, it's, it's difficult to explain, especially if you're dealing with a Jew or a Muslim who think they are the only people that believe in one God and that their major problem is that we believe in three. Well, we don't believe in three. But that is such a hard point to get across to them. But the writer of Hebrews had it right in the first sentence. And and the fact that he had that kind of insight when the only other thing I can think of from the New Testament, but this is not conclusive, is Jesus saying, he who has seen me has seen the Father. And here is the writer of Hebrews saying, he's the exact imprint. You know, that would be such a... An, uh, an easy thing for people to understand in a way but he articulates it and nobody else does that I can think of 
Am I wrong about that? I think you're right. I think it's uh, it's very that first couple of verses is just remarkable. Um, those seven act aspects of Jesus are uh, so lumped in one in one short section. You don't, you don't see all those attributes put together in one in such a concentrated way elsewhere, except in theology textbooks. <laughs> when did we get the doctrine of the Trinity? Was it about the third century? You know, you, you know, you know, Sheila is absolutely <laughs> incorrigible. Uh, she, she, she said to me before this uh, talk, she said, I suppose you're going to get a geography of the book of Hebrews. And I said, No, it's not a book of geography. But of course, but in her case, she has to have the history. And it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's she's consistent, and I, I great grateful grateful for this contribution. <laughs> yes. Um, so there's a warning about apostasy and how when people leave the faith, um, apparently there's no hope for them or something like that. I'm sorry, this is a very rough interpretation of what's written here. Yeah. But what's the best way to use that section? Because you know, you would never want to apply that to someone else or some group. Like, so it's it's a concern. But how do mm-hmm. you actually use that? Yeah, that's a very good question. And I, of course, I've I've skipped over the hard points. <laughs> 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 but uh, there is, as you know, elsewhere, a warning about uh, uh, speaking against the work of the Holy Spirit and uh, about the the so-called unforgivable sin. The the uh, best interpretation seems to me to be that uh, there are uh, a number of serious offenses which we can get caught up in, and these are more serious than, than others. And they have to do with, in a sense, blasphemy. And uh, the particular strength of the warning in Hebrews is that they are they are affirmed in the fact that they have received the Holy Spirit, but they are drifting away, which is a, a, in a sense a denial of what they first uh, what they first proclaimed. So that's that's my uh, woolly response to your question, but it's a it's a seriously tricky issue in in the strength of the uh, the statement about. An unforgivable sin. Yeah. Yeah, and it's it's interesting because it's juxtaposed to so much about repentance and repentance <coughs> and you know the whole history of the Old Testament where God is calling back the people of Israel, you know, and forgiveness. Yeah. So it is very hard to, to say how, how do those how are those two parallel where you know so much of the story is about repentance and forgiveness, how where is the line where the unpossible the unpossible line. I believe I believe that is consistent with this uh, interpretation of the structure of the book, because the emphasis on who Jesus is and what he has done is so clear, and because the warnings are so direct, that there is a sense in which there there is no way that one can deny this uh, evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit. Can I have a second second thought? <laughs> Years ago, uh, there was uh, when I was going to a louder church. Um, Pentecostal. <laughs> My analogy. Uh, one of the things that, that really struck me was um, it's not it's unforgivable in that you have rejected, right? So so if you harden your heart and if you close your heart and if you break that that love, it's almost like you, it's not that you're not forgivable, and it's not that you, it's that you can't repent, I think at some point maybe you cross a line where you're, you have turned away, so you, you can't get back, I don't know. I think that's a very constructive uh, way of looking at it, yeah. I think it's, I, that's a hard issue, isn't it? Hmm. I think you're being hesitant, because hmm. the confident answers of it. Un- I think he's saying unbelief is not innocent it will lead you to hate goodness itself mm-hmm. you will come to the day when you can say I hate the resurrected yeah. I don't want this to be God mm-hmm. I want some other God 
that's where it can lead. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's not a, it's not some no edit little problem with unbelief yeah. or doubt. Yeah. The spirit can become a hater of goodness. Good. I think Good. is he telling us in the benediction right away that he has seen the resurrected one? I suspect that he, the Messiah, has come and has been raised from the dead. Mm-hmm. He knows this. Yeah. Yeah. And without that knowledge, you can't make all these affirmations. Mm-hmm. He knows that. Mm-hmm. Good. Just a, a comment on, on this discussion and then my own question. Um, I, I wonder if it kind of, not fully resolved itself, but it's spoken to in part by the whole tension of Pharaoh, if you think about Pharaoh, right? At points, God hardens his heart. At other points, he's hardened his own heart. But it's actually a both. And he's hardened his heart. God has hardened his heart. Repentance, I think, is, is a gift from God, isn't it, right? Like, we can't repent unless God opens our eyes to see. And there does come a point, I agree, where you've gone so far down the path, God gives you over, and he's no longer granting the grace of repentance to you, you've, because Christ himself is uh, is grace. And if you've rejected him and gone so down that far down that path, by removing that, then suddenly you're so far away you can't even see the truth, and there's no new sacrifice coming down the road to bring you to repentance. That's mm-hmm. kind of how I think it, it, yeah. it, it sort of mm-hmm. doesn't resolve itself because it's difficult. How, do, how does how does Pharaoh harden his heart and God, well, it's a both end, yeah. is what I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah. My own question, just another maybe hard passage, and as we're thinking about the 500th anniversary of the um, Reformation, you look at chapter 13, right? Mm-hmm. You know, obey your leaders. I mean, this would have been a much used and abused passage right, right there. We're watching over your souls. Um, at what point do we say, you know, you leaders are actually fleecing the sheep, not leading them? Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, this passage no longer applies. It, you know, can you comment on that at all? I mean, or well, another sermon altogether. <laughs> I think, I mean, it's another interesting point. I mean, it's saying obey your leaders as long as they are consistent with what you have learned. I mean, is, we, we're, we're told to obey and to, and to respect the institution of leadership. But we all know that leadership curdles and that uh, little bits of power corrupt in funny little ways. So that the actual leaders are corruptible and uh, in, in, in that sense we, we don't need, we don't obey our leaders under those circumstances yeah because I remember there was uh, I was discussing this with a Roman Catholic once and they were saying you know follow the bishop as Ignatius said and I said well the problem with that is during the Arian controversy most of the bishops were Arians at one point yeah. so would you follow that bishop what if you were some you know Christian in Ephesus at the time, and your bishop, I'm not speaking with historical knowledge here, just throwing it out, was one of those Arian bishops. Do you say, well, that's what the bishop says? Or do you say, you know what, that's not what I think actually we've been taught. No, I mean, I think it's a very good point. But the integrity of the book of Hebrews is, is consistent, and it's, a, it's, it's setting forth the importance of the way in which Jesus lived and died and rose again. That's, I think, and one would obey leadership which magnified Christ. Mm-hmm. It seems to me that's the sort of the key point. Um, if I could just come back to this earlier point, then maybe there's a secular insight that's become available to us recently. Brain science is one of the big things uh, in the secular <coughs> world. And one of the extraordinary things, of course, is the way in which the brain changes over time. And it seems to me that, that uh, let's just say, the morphology of the brain and the, and the uh, electrical signals that are passed through the brain vary over time. So that it seems to me that there's a, a sense in which the, the getting into bad habit uh, can uh, make things difficult, not, not in terms of it, not impossible. In, in, in God's provision and God's grace, anything is possible. But it can be more difficult than we imagine because our whole way of thinking and the structure of our brain has changed mm. over time. So that relates, of course, to the question of persistence in sinning and the question of persisting in apostasy. Yes, please. 
seems like one antidote to hardening our brains and hearts in the wrong way is in chapter 4, verse 14, where it says, let us hold fast to our confession. And then later, 16, let us stand with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So this can be substituted and focused on rather than having to worry about what is apostasy, but worry about, you know, focus on holding fast to our confession and approaching the throne of grace will lead us in the right direction. So it seems in the chapter four it's sort of given us well, the antidote the way I think about it. <laughs> well, that's a very helpful insight. It seems to me that that's focusing on the, the positive Something message. Something we can actually do yeah. and pay attention to. And, and also we can lead other people to do yeah. without having to know how far they are into thinking the wrong way. We have something positive to turn them to and say, let's go back to our confession and renew that. Thank you very much for that. Yes, and in a way, that's what we've been saying, isn't it? That that all the affirmations come before the warnings so that you can filter the warnings, as it were, with the affirmations. And and I've always found the book of Hebrews so exciting because it goes right back to the Old Testament and shows how Jesus um, wasn't somebody that came out of the blue, as it were, but uh, fulfilled everything um, that was foretold in the Old Testament, even the old uh, laws, etc. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, that's a very important point. I think just also reinforcing that, just the sheer number of verses that are focused on the positive in, in the book. There are these serious warnings. We have to be alerted and we have to wake up. So the whole emphasis of waking up, I think, is, is, is clearly a critical thing here. But 85% of the book, 90% of the book, is affirmation. So that, uh, yes, please. Um, one question. Um, it, it, uh, it says the reason that they cannot be brought back to repentance is because to that the laws, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. What does that mean by crucifying Christ all over again? Well, I think that's the reason for not being able to repent. Uh, Daniel, where, where were you reading? Uh, verse, uh, um, verse 6. six uh, chapter 6. six, six. Okay. Yeah, I mean, that's a very important point. I mean, in a sense, you see, that that really makes us all sit up. When we take the name of God in vain, we are, in a sense, crucifying Christ again by the way in which we use the word casually. In the same sense, in the more direct sense, the, the question of, blaspheming against the Holy Spirit uh, is crucifying Christ again not literally of course but spiritually so I think that that's a, a pretty important point yeah. Yeah. Well, just following on what you said I think uh, you know we, we even have candy these days it's called OMG I mean, how bad can it get? But I think the the reason, the, the outcome of the kind of um, use of God's uh, the word um, God or Jesus is to trivialize it, and there is nothing trivial about the sacrifice mm-hmm. of the cross. And I think over time it has that that um, result for us that everybody is beginning to talk about God in a very loose way it has nothing really to do with our faith. Yep. Yep. Trash, the, trash the whole crucifixion, you know. Mm. I was in a discussion group recently out on campus and, and uh, the statement was made that nobody, of course, believes in the existence of a soul any longer. 
and I put my hand up and said, uh, what's the evidence that you bring for this statement? <laughs> Good for you. Did you get an answer? There was no answer. It was simply an assumption. And, uh, and it was quite interesting to follow up some of the, the comments because it, it opened up the discussion, as you can imagine. <laughs> Yeah. Um, I've heard it said that you know, Hebrews is the Leviticus of the New Testament. What are your thoughts on that? Well, thank God it's not. <laughs> <laughs> and I use the word God there respectfully and reverently. Yes. Yes. No, I mean, uh, of course, it's, it, it's, it's a lot of its uh, a lot of its uh, references are to Leviticus and uh, and the whole model of the of the, the old covenant is clearly brought to bear but uh, we know that there is a new covenant and the new covenant uh, is really a covenant of freedom and uh, I think that to call it the Leviticus of the New Testament would be potentially misleading except it points us to the, the, yeah. the original uh, references like putting new wine in old wineskins yeah <laughs> on, on the other hand, uh, uh, chapter 7, uh, verse uh, 24, it, it says, uh, Jesus holds his priesthood uh, permanently, and uh, consequently he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for him, for them. Uh, that's such a beautiful verse in a way, and in in, in my background, uh, in some ways, they say that that sounds a bit Catholic to be interceding to uh, asking the Lord because He's already finished it; the work is done, it's completed. But really, when you read this verse, uh, He's 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 always living to make intercession for us. It's an amazing thing, really, and that. Uh, we can still pray, pray to the Lord to intercede for us because, I mean, he's already doing it. It's when we think we can have our priests do it again, they'll get into trouble. But Jesus is, this is a continuous present activity of Jesus, right? the intercession for us. So that the, the work is done, but the intercession continues. Yes, On the existence of the soul, there's a Biola University philosopher, evangelical Christian, J.P. Moreland, who you can get him on YouTube, and mm -hmm. he, you know, things will pop up the existence of the soul, evidence for the soul. So, very good teacher, very clear. Uh, you know, he'll talk about the functions of the soul, the nature of the soul, uh, you know, really helpful stuff. And well, I, I would just add to that the World Health Organization. Um, uh, uh, mandates that uh, people in hospitals have to be cared holistically, which includes spiritual. Accreditation Canada, when they go into hospitals, and three or four or five examiners will go into a hospital and examine the care offered in hospitals. Spiritual care is part of the the, uh, the tenants. Like you know, there might be two hundred points <coughs> in which. Healthcare professionals have to give evidence that they're caring for people across 200 items, and spiritual care is one of those. So, interestingly enough, anybody arguing that there's no soul, all you, all you have to do is just say, wait a second, there's broad organizations like World Health Organization, Accreditation Canada, that will argue that people have a spiritual nature, and that that, that that spiritual nature, and I would say spiritual and soul are almost synonymous, have to be looked after. So, thank you. Thank you. the comments around soul. Yeah. Moreland, M-O-R-L-A-N-D? Moreland, yeah. Really okay. good teacher, M-O-R-E-L-A-N-D. I'd like to uh, build a little bit on that. The, the um, Brain Science Center at UBC was set up uh, recently, as you may know, and uh, it was filled with, uh, with uh, secular scientists uh, with no attention paid to the need for spiritual counsel. Uh, one such person has now been appointed uh, actually from a Buddhist tradition. So they've jumped in where 
others did not, but it's, 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 a, it's an indication of the, the maturity of the director who started off feeling, in his case, as a, as a lapsed Jew, that such a, a person would not fit in to his center, but he's recognizing more and more that there are needs beyond that of the electric circuit, circuitry of the brain. <laughs> and so there is an opportunity there. And I, you know, for building on what you just told us, I think it's consistent with how modern science fails to accommodate the spiritual needs of, uh, of, of our society. Okay, one of the is modern science is often uh, extremely material science. Mm-hmm. That's really what it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if you call it material science, then you don't confuse science and, uh, and issues like the soul and God. Because yeah. yeah. I remember back when I was young, they tried to show there was no soul by putting you know, very delicate weights and seeing if a person died if they get lighter. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, you know. <laughs> But you know, one moves from this, this profound book of Hebrews to trivia like that. I mean, that it just indicates the, the limitations of material science. Well, if I try to understand computers by understanding how, I don't know, a biology works or something else like that, I'm not going to get anywhere either. No. I mean, all right, no. if, you're, if you're in the wrong field studying something, you're not going to get anywhere, right? <laughs> so I think it does, you know, it, it, it's important to, to recognize that. Uh, first of all, uh, Sam, please. I just can't help uh, giving you this quote. It, I, I first encountered it by C.S. Lewis. When I've looked online, there's doubt about whether it's his or maybe George MacDonald's, but he, C.S. Lewis says, we don't have a soul. We are a soul. We have a body. Mm-hmm. Good. Good. That kind of, that's pretty good. That sounds like a, a good final comment. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you all for your attention. <laughs>